Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Beats Research Radio, a podcast and YouTube channel that aims to disseminate science and research to the community. My name is Janan, and I'm a fourth-year undergraduate student at U Ottawa studying translational and molecular medicine, and I'll be your host on today's episode. Joining us today is Dr. Mete Chivilek, a distinguished researcher and professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Virginia. And Dr. Chivilek's research laboratory is studying the complex interactions among genes and environment that increase our risk for heart, de- heart disease and diabetes type 2. He's using cutting-edge tools for big data analytics to understand the molecular pathways of disease and develops personalized medicine approaches to cardiovascular and metabolic disorders. Beyond his research, Dr. Chivilek is the recipient of the NIH Pathway to Independence Award from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. In addition to his research, Dr. Chivilek is a dedicated educator who is passionate about training the next generation of scientists, where he teaches courses about computational biology and data science. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chivilek, to share your expertise and insights on the latest developments in your field. Thank you so much for inviting me. Your introduction was amazing. You made me sound really nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, So we'd like to start by asking our guests to tell us a bit about about themselves. So what inspired you to pursue the career you presently have today? And why did you choose to work on cardiovascular diseases or type 2 diabetes in specific? That's a really insightful question because I think like most scientists, a lot of serendipity and role models played a role in this. Uh, I studied chemical engineering in my undergraduate uh, in Turkey. I grew up in Istanbul and I went to Boğaziçi University and that's where I studied chemical engineering. I worked in a research lab as an undergraduate and there was a graduate student there who had done a double major in chemical engineering and molecular biology. And I was inspired by her, so I decided to do that. I really enjoyed it. When you're a chemical engineer and you're interested in biology, what comes to mind typically is biotechnology, which is really using microorganisms to produce chemicals and small molecules, etc. And that was my interest. My actually undergraduate uh, research project was about optimizing the uh, the reaction conditions and production conditions of a industrially useful enzyme. So when I applied to grad school, uh, I applied to basically biotechnology programs in chemical engineering departments. Uh, But interestingly, I went to Penn State and found out that all the biotechnology labs were full and they were not taking any more students. Uh, So I then decided to work in a lab that was still doing something biologically related. And that was a lab that was studying the impact of blood flow on vascular biology, basically, because atherosclerosis, which is the plaque buildup in your arteries and the underlying cause of heart attacks, uh, occurs in regions of the vasculature in very defined regions. And those regions are defined by a certain blood flow characteristic called disturbed flow. So that's what got me interested in cardiovascular biology. Uh, it, it was essentially happenstance. I became successful and I also really enjoyed the work. I did my PhD on uh, looking at endothelial cells, which line the blood vessels and how blood flow affects those cells. And then I went to do my postdoc uh, and learned cardiovascular genetics. And here I am running a lab on uh, genetics of cardiometabolic disorders. That's very interesting. Thank you for sharing your experience on on how you got there. 
by now that we know that you're using cutting edge genomic and computational tools in your research, uh, which is uh, kind of a new field uh, to students and to researchers. So can you first briefly explain your research on the genetic and environmental factors that contribute to cardiovascular disease? Some of the key findings of your work maybe, and sure. how do these tools enable you to study these complex molecular pathways underlying these disorders? Sure, sure. Let me let me just very briefly explain it. So, you know, the diseases that we commonly see in the population, like coronary artery disease, like type 2 diabetes, like cancer, they have an environmental component, which is our lifestyle, you know, whether you're physically active or not, or you smoke or not, etc. Um, but they also have a genetic factor. So that's why when you go to the doctor and probably most of your listeners don't go to the doctor yet, but at some point they will. Uh, the doctor asks you if you have a family history of heart disease, for example, because the genetics play an important role. And in the last 15 years or so, because of the advancement in technology of DNA sequencing, we have been able to learn a lot more about the genetic basis of heart attacks and strokes and type 2 diabetes and obesity. Now, a genetic finding is really interesting because it's usually done by, you know, full genome sequencing of maybe million people. So it's a lot of information, but it's almost the beginning of a journey. You find certain DNA sequences that are uh, associated with a disease, let's say heart attack, but then you don't know the mechanism of how that's occurring. You also don't know uh, how that can be translated into either diagnostics or therapeutics. So that's where my lab comes in. Uh, we take those genetic findings and really try to interpret them in a way to understand the molecular mechanism of the disease. Let's say we want to be able to say, oh, this DNA sequence that leads to an increase in your risk for heart attack, it is doing it by affecting let's say, the abundance of this gene in this cell type, and that affects the proliferation of that cell type, and that's what causes this disease. Once you have that, then you can really turn that into a diagnostic, you can turn that into a therapeutic. So that's where my lab comes in. Okay, that's, that's very impressive, uh, looking at all the pathways and at the same time trying to analyze it and using tools to to kind of predict what what happens or just maybe um, connecting dots between genes and the actual disease itself. Actually, I love the way you put it. It's truly connecting the dots because you have this DNA, the genome. There are certain DNA differences between you and me and and all your listeners, and that can cause a. Uh, increase in the risk for having a heart attack. It doesn't mean you're going to have it. But that information that's encoded in your DNA sequence somehow right, is traveling to affect your, your cells, your physiology, your you know, blood cholesterol levels, etc. So we're really trying to connect those dots between the DNA sequence variants and the disease process. Yeah, that's, that's very amazing. And maybe as a follow-up question, what are some of the challenges that you're currently facing in working with these technologies or the tools? Well, you know, um, uh, so there are, there are multiple, right? Uh, one of them is actually 
access to cells and tissues. So this disease, the one that we, we study mostly in the lab, atherosclerosis, which is, as I mentioned, is the plaque buildup in the arteries, in the coronary arteries, are obviously in a tissue that's inaccessible, right? It's not like you can draw blood and, and do some assays. We actually need to work with cells from the coronary arteries. Um, and obviously you cannot biopsy that from healthy individuals. Um, so we need to work with uh, organ donors typically. Um, these are people who unfortunately died in let's say a car accident and their families uh, donated the hearts and maybe other organs for organ transplants. And we take uh, some of the tissues during the procedure that would normally be discarded and work with those. You can imagine that access to those tissues is not easy. Um, it's highly regulated as it should be, of course. Um, and organ transplantation doesn't occur uh, a lot in a given hospital. It happens a lot across uh, the world, but you know, in a given hospital system, it doesn't always occur. So one of the major challenges is actually access to the cells and tissues that are really relevant to the disease. Um, and the other challenge is when you're studying humans, you always need large numbers because obviously as we humans, we vary a lot in our phenotypes, right? Just look at you and me, we look different. Your listeners will look different. We have different heights and weights, all kinds of things. So in order to gain meaningful, uh, you know, understand meaningful differences, you need really large numbers uh, because the variation in the given group between disease and healthy people might be really high. Um, so that's probably another challenge that we face. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe just, I was wondering what your vision is for the future using these computational tools. Um, what do you expect would happen um, with this technology? Well, you know, um, so there are a few. Uh, let's first start with the diagnostic side. Um, of course, doctors, cardiologists, do their best uh, to diagnose people, but they're human after all, and they make mistakes, as you can imagine. And there are certain uh, groups of people that get underdiagnosed. For example, women, actually, who suffer from heart disease, um, they present with a different pathology than men. Um, more women have inobstructive coronary artery disease, and more men have obstructive coronary artery disease. And unfortunately, women also get understudied in clinical trials. So we perhaps can have a diagnostic criteria, uh, you know, artificial intelligence-driven tool to provide more accurate diagnosis for different groups of people, right? Um, and, and the reason I'm saying that is because, for example, women who truly suffer cardiovascular disease get underdiagnosed and get undertreated, right? With obviously deadly consequences. So that's one area that I really hope that technology is going to have an impact. Um, the second one is uh, we're doing a lot more single cell level analyses, single cell RNA sequencing, single cell um, chromatin accessibility assays, et cetera. Um, I think we need to do that 
more and in different conditions and different uh, people, healthy and disease or stimulated versus unstimulated. Um, the technology is getting there. It used to be really expensive. Um, so that's definitely another area where technology is going to help us advance our basic science understandings. Okay, that's very interesting. It's definitely a very um, novel area, and I look forward to reading more of your work and other people's work who are doing uh, sort of the same thing. Um, so in addition to your research, you're also an ed a dedicated educator, and you teach uh, courses in computational biology and data science. How do you approach teaching these complex topics to undergraduate or graduate students? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Uh, so... I teach in an engineering department mm -hmm. and engineers love to work with things as opposed to just theoretically understanding the basis of everything, right? They want to, they want to, uh, you know, destroy things <laughs> and then put them together. And that's the approach that I take in my class too. I give students a real life data set from my lab and essentially I teach them throughout the entire semester of how to do RNA sequencing data analysis. And we start with first learning some skills. Students need to learn Unix, for example, to be able to analyze their data. So we first focus on that. We then take the initial steps in the data analysis, take it to a certain point, and then we switch to R. R is a statistical language, and that's another point where students learn another skill and then they also learn to do uh, statistical analysis with large data sets using uh, you know R-based tools and all of this really uh, is based on real data that is imperfect and actually that's what really teaches the students how to work with you know data sets that are available in the public um, that it's not just you know, an exam where there is a definitive answer. And that's uh, a different, uh, I guess, philosophy than most of the uh, classes that the students take because students typically struggle with this at the beginning because I give them a homework and they want a specific answer, right? And it's not always the one answer. If you analyze your data in one way, you might get a different answer. If you analyze your data in another way, you might get another answer. And I want students to document the way they analyze their data. I want students to understand why they made certain choices and explain and justify them. Uh, so it, it becomes a really fun class because towards the end of the semester, you see the skill build up. But more importantly, I observe the students getting more comfortable with uh, uncertainty, which is what you observe in real research, right? We don't have a homework and a uh, and and you know a, a homework key where there is you know definitive answers. You're really searching for the truth, and that's exactly the philosophy that I apply in my class. Yeah, for sure, that's a very interesting approach, and uh, I agree with you. It's very important to have them understand the relevance of science in real life. And uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and finally, what would be your advice to, student, to students or junior researchers interested in pursuing a career in the fields of genomics and data science? Oh, I think that there are so many opportunities available. So let me give you this. There's now 
so many pharmaceutical companies, biotech, who really understand the value of human genetics research, and they value both genetics and genomics approaches. So there's quite a few jobs available in this area, and they're all looking for well-trained individuals. I think for an undergraduate student who's interested in this line of inquiry, um, there are a few options. Number one is hopefully they can actually work in a research lab with a mentor who you know, is interested in this kind of work. Um, and you can find a lot of them in the medical schools. They may not be in your typical you know, chemistry biology department, some of them will be, but there are a lot of basic science researchers in medical schools and they should feel free to approach them and volunteer or, or get a paid job to work in those labs. Number two, I think internships in, you know, these kind of biotech companies and, uh, and uh, you know, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies is really a good opportunity to both test the environment and also learn new skills. And number three, and the final one is, there's a lot of summer programs that are, you know, funded by federal government, you know, to increase student participation in research. And many of them are uh, geared towards genetics and genomics. And, and students really should feel free to apply to those programs. Usually the applications are, you know, in the winter or early in the spring and spend the summer doing research in these areas for 10, 12 weeks. And, get their feet wet, if you will, and see if they like it. Yeah, that's that's a very good advice. Thank you for sharing this. Um, so we're reaching the end of our uh, podcast. Um, so on behalf of the entire team and our radio director, Dr. Emilia Alarcon, thank you all to the BEATS uh, research listeners to, for your time. And thank you, Dr. Uh, Chivilek, for joining us today. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram channels at BEATS Research Radio. And